HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Yep. Yes, indeed, folks. It's 12 o'clock. It's Monday, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, We're going to start off with uh, Joys and Sorrows, my my sort of um, uh, compilation of interesting tidbits of news and views. And um, in case you were thinking that the uh, issues around agriculture and food have been completely ignored by the campaign, I'm here to tell you that no, that's not the case. In fact, Kathleen Merrigan, who was acting as the surrogate for the Clinton campaign, uh, mixed it up with someone named Sam Clovis, who is part of the Trump campaign. They did discuss agriculture. And uh, there was a quote, I read this in Drover's Cattle Network. There was a quote from Ms. Mr. Clovis, and it went something like this. Actually, it went exactly like this because I cut and pasted it. It's not so much a regulatory regime. It's the fact of the matter that when you write regulations to reimpose regulations, you create satiations that cause people to lose the competitive comparative advantage they have economically. I had to read that sentence four times to make any sense out of it whatsoever. I, I think I understand it now, but what a case of word salad. Do you think the man actually knows what satiation means? And was he perhaps thinking of the word saturation? Anyway, it would just kind of um, stand to reason that somebody from the Trump campaign wouldn't quite get the verbiage correctly. In any case, the debate broke down, as you might imagine, across party lines with Merrigan advocating for regulations like Waters of the United States and others, and Clovis, of course, delivering the above gem, indicating his displeasure and thus Trump's displeasure with the idea of regulating anything. Um, and so there you have it. That's where that's where that whole conversation went i.e. nowhere. Um, and last week, as we learned in le- in um, with David Dayan, who was my guest last week, a food journalist, uh, who we, we talked about the 
investor state dispute settlement, which is a big part of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as well as the TTIP, another big trade um, agreement that is being negotiated with Western Europe. And we were talking about um, why we didn't like TPP, which probably is a moot point at this point, because I doubt it will get passed in the lame duck session of Congress, but it might. And the reason it might is because organizations such as the National Cattlemen's Beef Association have spent significant time and money lobbying Congress to sign the treaty. And they tell congressional members that it costs the industry $400,000 a day every day that we don't have this deal. And why? Because Australia is beating us in selling into Japan. And despite the fact that the Japanese have lifted the ban on U.S. cattle some time ago, we we still are not up to that competitive edge. The congressional members, I think, are so largely ignorant of where and how cattle markets operate. I'm sure that this sad sack story really resonates for them. And I think the reality is, is that we need more export markets because more Americans are choosing not to eat beef, either because it is perceived as unhealthy to consume too much red meat or because they want to opt out of the industrial beef supply. But what I was really thinking is if the NCBA spent more time reforming their industry, they wouldn't be so worried about acquiring new markets around the world. So that's my two cents on the NCBA and lobbying for TPP. Another thing I noticed was that the unspeakable Speakable gas bag known as Carl Rove, you might remember him from um, <clears throat> previous campaigns, really uh, next to Dick Cheney, one of the sort of uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse of the Republican Party, in my opinion, has opined that Trump will not be able to corral enough electoral votes to win the election. So even though this is the guy who could refuse to concede Romney's loss, um, I think that he's probably accurate and one can only hope that he is. And um, and thus, that is a joy, in case you hadn't figured that out. I forgot to tell you that the one before the TPP discussion was a sorrow. But, you know, what what matter? And then lastly, good news about sustainability, assuming we all define it the same way eventually. Um, according to a new report from the Business and Sustainable Development Commission, which I think was part of the UN, eating in a more eco-friendly way can generate massive profits. Now, that is a joy, isn't it? Because you know the food industry will never do anything because it's a good thing to do. They will only do it because it makes money. The report claims that taking a sustainable approach to the world's food and agriculture challenges like hunger, food waste, and environmental degradation could lead to new business opportunities totaling an annual $2.3 trillion and 80 million new jobs by 2030. That is based on an analysis of industry reports and academic literature. I read that in the Huffington Post, by the way. As part of that plan, diminishing food waste by selling less than perfect fruits and vegetables has become a major driver, especially in England and France. And now even American supermarkets are moving in that way. And it is indeed a great way to save on waste and save on the cost of produce. Because if you think about it, if you throw out half a crop because it's not perfect in the way it looks, as in cosmetically, but is otherwise perfectly wholesome, then obviously your prices have to go up to compensate for that loss. So if 
we managed to convince people that, or rather convince, I don't know, distributors or grocery stores that we are willing to buy produce that isn't perfect looking, why then that would lower the cost of it for everyone and more people would have access to healthy fruits and vegetables. So that's the end of Joys and Sorrows. I've managed to keep it under five minutes. Oh, just turned six. But still, I think that's a step in the right direction. Now I know what my timing is. We're going to come right back with Professor Emeritus John Eichard. Um, he is a, a, sort of an under-the-radar guy, at least he was for me. I just found out about him a few months ago when I was researching my book. And I just love what he writes. And uh, it turns out that he is kind of a guru for a lot of the people that I admire in the sustainable meat movement or the sustainable meat mm, cohort. So um, stay tuned and we'll be right back with Dr. John Eichard. We're going to be talking about factory farming and innovating in food systems. Stay tuned. And this one's called Greenwood Cemetery by Teeth People. We'll be right back. State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. And today we're going to be talking with Professor Emeritus John Eichard. Uh, he was, he is a professor emeritus of agricultural economics, one of my favorite subjects because I understand and know nothing about it, from the University of Missouri, Columbia. Uh, he was raised on a small dairy farm in southwest Missouri. He received his MS, B, BS, MS, and PhD degrees in agricultural economics from the the University of Missouri. He worked in private industry for a time and spent 30 years in various professional positions at North Carolina State University, Oklahoma State University, the University of Georgia, and the University of Missouri before retiring in early 2000. And since retiring, he spends most of his time writing and speaking on issues related to sustainability with an emphasis on economics and agriculture. His many books, listen up folks, his many books include Essentials of Economic Sustainability, Sustainable Capitalism, a return to common sense. Small farms are real farms. Crisis and opportunity, sustainability in American agriculture, and a revolution of the middle. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to visit with your listeners. <laughs> well, I'm sure they'll all be delighted. Um, I saw in your bio that you had spent some years working for a large meatpacking company. How much did that experience influence your later writing? Well, I think it kind of rounded out my experience in the same way that growing up on a small dairy farm in southwest Missouri did. When I worked with the, the packing company immediately after my B.S. degree, it was Wilson Packing Company at that time, uh -huh. currently Wilson Foods, but it was the fourth largest meat packer in the country. And 
I spent time in merchandising, advertising, sales promotion. I call it games and gimmicks today. (laughs) But I spent a lot of time in in a lot of different things. I spent a lot of time in supermarkets with promotions and things Uh of that nature and interacting with the the buyers for the big supermarkets as well as being in the packing plants and seeing animals slaughtered and seeing the meat processed and seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think it really informed my, my whole background and understanding of the meat business, much in the same way I worked in the Kansas City stockyards for a few months, which was an educational experience as well. So I think all those things kind of ground me in reality mm-hmm. in addition to the fact that I've had the academic training and then the experience at the different universities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be a pretty profound experience to go through a slaughter plant and watch what happens when they disassemble an animal and... Just the, the noise, the smell, it's just an incredible experience that really probably everybody should should have if they would only let us. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. I think we eventually we as society, you know, we have to come uh, to the realization that, that everything we eat was once a, once a living thing, whether it's animals or whether it's plants or whatever it is, that mm. every living thing, is bi- we're biological beings and every biological being lives by eating a flesh of what was once another biological being. So uh, being in a processing plant or a slaughter plant really brings that home in a, in a very direct way. It, it does indeed, absolutely. And I'm a meat eater. I'm not against eating meat by any by any stretch. Um, I'm quite the carnivore, less of one as I get older than I used to be. But um, I noticed my daughter, who is, you know, 20, still craves meat, especially red meat, uh, you know. I think it's just a nutritional thing. Your body says, wow, I really need that right now because I'm growing or I'm, you know, whatever, making a baby or not making, you know. Anyway, let's let's talk about a certain quote uh, that I pulled out of um, your most recent newsletter uh, or actually your newsletter, but one. Um, and this was the one about factory farming. And the quote is corporate agribusinesses use their contractual arrangements with CAFO, that's confined uh, concentrated area feeding operation operators to manipulate markets in ways that prevent independent farmers of even having access to competitive markets. And I wanted you to explain that. How does that work? What What is the economic um, impact of, of corporate agribusiness and contractual arrangements with CAFOs? Well, there's this kind of general feeling or general impression that people are giving that the CAFOs or factory farms or whatever you want to call them today kind of a natural evolution of a competitive market. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my most direct experience with that was with the transition in the hog business um, during the 1990s whenever CAFOs come in. There were relatively few of those in the early 90s, and they basically took over the industry in a 10-year period. Yeah. But we had records at the University of Missouri at that time, so we knew what cost of production was. But anyway, the, the CAFOs, the new CAFOs that were coming in were more economically efficient than, let's say, the, the bottom third or the least efficient third of independent producers, somewhere between a third and a half. Mm-hmm. But they were less efficient economically than the more efficient third or half, let's say, or two-thirds or half of the independent producers. But, but when they, they – that gave them a competitive advantage then over the lower, uh, the less efficient independent producers, and this, these are the ones that they turned into contract producers. They replaced them with contract producers. In some cases, they give them contracts so that they were under contract so that the hogs would go directly to that packer. So once the the contracting operations, the packers then got a sufficient control of the market, once they controlled like a third to a half of the market, then they were in a position that when we get into a period of kind of chronic oversupplies, uh, all of agriculture is cyclical, 
then rather than lowering their prices to the retailers, which would have moved larger supplies of hogs through the market, they simply kept their prices to the retailers at the lower level, which ended up with a surplus of hogs. They were still processing the hogs under contract, but they didn't really need the independent producers' hogs, so they allowed the markets to go down, basically forcing even the most independent, uh, most efficient producers out. In the, in the late 1990s, we got into a situation, as I've described here, where we had a kind of a cyclical increase in hog production brought on partly by the expansion of the CAFO operators, but also mm-hmm. expansion of independent producers. And they forced live hog prices at that time down to about $9 a hundredweight. We hadn't seen hog prices oh. that, that low since the early 1900s, maybe during the Great Depression. Oh it had no relationship to the market value of pork or what producers would have paid, I mean, what consumers would have paid for pork or anything else. Mm-hmm. It was simply a way to force the last of the most independent the most efficient of the independent hog producers out of business. Mm-hmm. And once you've done that, then basically you control the market. You can manipulate prices and however you want to simply by uh, producing more or less under contract or taking more or less from the, from the open market. Uh-huh. Very interesting. So <clears throat> didn't that also coincide with a sort of um, shrinking of options for producers in terms of slaughtering and distribution? Wasn't that part of the the impact of consolidating yeah. those those independent farmers the list yeah. it's all going it, all of that is happening at the same time at the mm-hmm. same time they're consolidating and contracting with producers then the contract producers we saw this first in chickens and then mm-hmm. to a certain extent in beef and then in hogs but but what they're doing then is competing to see who's going to be the lowest cost or the most efficient or most profitable among themselves among the packing operations and so this also squeezes out periods like that. Also squeezes out the least, least efficient processors and and slaughterers of of animals as well. Mm. The, the overall strategy in moving in this direction is what they learn from the poultry industry. If you can get down to the point where there's like three or four uh, large processing slaughter and processing um, operations that are left basically in control of the market. Then, then they can stabilize production, as they've done for poultry and they've done to a certain extent in other areas. But they do it on the backs of the contract producers. So when you get a kind of unanticipated cyclical oversupply because of consumer resistance or various things, and I say agriculture is kind of it's not like a factory. You don't know exactly what you're going to produce from year to year. But if you get an oversupply, then what they would do is rather than take losses, which would be typical in a period of oversupply in the markets, what they would do is simply cut back on the number of hogs that they would take under contract or the number of chickens they would take under contract. Contracts are written in such a way that the, that the contract grower is supposed to get a certain number, but there's a good deal of flexibility in it between the time that you get one batch of chickens and another one or another, one batch of hogs or another. Or those are times whenever there's contract clauses that says if you're among the least efficient producers, then we simply don't renew your contract or we don't right. continue. Right. So they put all of the burden of adjusting the markets then on the back of their contract growers and, and their uh, investors in those large corporations and just go on making money year after year after year. So we've taken what was maybe the last of the really competitive markets. We, we brag about capitalism, competitive markets. But we've taken what was some of the last of the really competitive markets and these contractual arrangements have basically turned those systems into basically central planning, except it's being done by the 
in the boardrooms of a few large uh, agribusiness corporations rather than being done by the central government somewhere. But we basically lost the competitive markets all through the agricultural system by allowing this consolidation. Fascinating. Um, you suggested uh, also in that um, in that same blog about factory farming that the rest of the world doesn't need or want our agricultural commodities in order to feed their populations. But but if we dismantled our lucrative export market for for commodities such as rice, corn, soy, or meat, wouldn't that have catastrophic impacts on the overall agricultural economy? Well, there would there would be definitely be an adjustment in the agricultural economy. But what I'm what I think we need to do is we need to separate agriculture as sort of this uh, c- commercial, industrial sort of uh, business venture, which mm-hmm. is kind of dominated today, from, from agriculture as a means of providing domestic or even international or global food security. Uh, in fact, I've suggested that what we ought to do is take the current commodity programs, current most of the current programs in the Department of Agriculture, basically and put them in the Department of Commerce. And then they would, you know, agricultural exports would just be uh, managed as a part of the overall export uh, commerce that we're involved in here. And then we would look at producing food, you know, real food for people domestically and internationally. Uh, I would put in a new department of um, domestic food security or overall food security and deal with that in a different way. It would be a, a transition as we move away from this. But I tell people one thing. You know, it's good about being old, as you can remember, when things aren't like they were today. And so we've we've kind of created this whole emphasis on agricultural exports in the last 10 to 20 years in agriculture as we move to a point where this industrial agricultural system, which is tremendously productive in terms of total output, at least per Mm -hmm. farmer and to a certain extent per acre, as we move to a period of time where we had the ability to produce far more uh, agricultural commodities than we could consume de- domestically, then we begin to move the surplus into the international markets. And now we have kind of the concern for the international markets and trade dominating, uh, whereas it was really just a surplus of something that we needed to move out and get rid of. Now it's become kind of the driving force and dominating uh, the whole business of producing food for people. Yes. And moreover, there is a kind of a an interesting, um, I think you referred to this, and maybe I ask you about this later, but I'm going to ask you about it now, about the propaganda that has been fed to farmers, no matter what uh, crop they're growing, um, but particularly in the meat sector, because that's my area of expertise, uh, that, you know, if we don't, you know, continue to expand the CAFO model and factory farming of that scale, well, why then people will starve and it's up to the American farmer to make sure that the world gets enough food. And I feel like um, farmers have really bought into that narrative. And I wondered what your response was to that. Do you think that's true, that they believe that? Or would they be open to making changes to, you know, to the way that they do business now? I I believe probably the the farmers believe it because they're being told that by people they should be able to trust by the large farm organizations, such as the Farm Bureau Federation or Mm. the Departments of Agriculture and things of that imply that, and even the big agricultural colleges, but they're simply not backed up by by facts. In in fact, we're not meeting the basic food needs of people in this country. While we were going through industrializing agriculture, I bought into it for the first half of my academic career because I thought we would expand production, bring down the cost of food, and make good food affordable to everyone. We didn't do that. It failed. 
we've got more people that are classified as food insecure today in this country than we had in the 1960s. About 15% of the people today are classified as food insecure, meaning they don't know that they're going to be able to get through the month without having running out of food. Right. And then more than 20% of our children live in food insecure homes. Back in the 1967, when CBS did the documentary Hunger in America, mm-hmm. they estimated that about 5% of the people were hungry at that time. So what we've done is we've relied on markets to feed people, and markets will never feed the hungry people. You know, it's it makes no sense that we say we're trying to feed hungry people when we've been burning up 40% of our corn crop to, in our cars by making ethanol out of it. And when right. we're exporting products to to other countries, about 30%, according to the Farm Bureau, about 30% of net farm incomes associated with exports. That's Indeed. feeding hungry people at home. And a good bit of that is not going, and there's recent reports out, very little of our exports goes to the most hungry parts of the world. They go to parts of the world where people can afford to pay higher prices Mm -hmm. for the things we export than our people at home can pay to keep the food at home. And most of it is going to the expanding affluent classes in China and India and the Pacific Rim, not to the hungry people there. They know better in China than to take land out of rice production that are feeding their hungry people to produce uh, feed for livestock. So they come over here and they produce the livestock here and they leave the waste here. And then they ship the meat there and expect their rising affluent class to pay whatever the cost is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it, we're, not, we're not serious about feeding the world. And the rest of the world doesn't need our agriculture. Contrary to popular belief, more than 70%, some estimates, 80% of the people in the world today are fed on small farms that we would call subsistence farms. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole host of programs around the world and documents. I mean, there's research in the the, uh, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN and various other places. And the last four or five reports that have come out of the UN have, have, have promoted these alternative approaches. Agroecology is one of the strongest ones, nature farming in the East, uh, permaculture in the U.S., you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's organic and, and biodynamic and, and practical farming and ecological farming. All of these systems are capable of doubling or tripling yields on those 70 to 80 percent of the farms that are feeding the people. I mean, those people that are being fed by the small farms without industrial agriculture. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, <laughs> that was a good answer. That was a good long answer. But, you know, the question that I have about that is like making that transition in the United States. I mean, other countries have not bought into industrial farming the way we have. And so asking farmers to make that transition back to um, a more agroecological approach, uh, which would include um, crop rotations, more crop rotations, more variation in crops, um, putting animals back out on pasture, you know, stuff like that. How, how would we, how could we persuade farmers that they, first of all, need to make those changes? And secondly, how can we support them financially as they go through that process? I mean, that's, to me, that's sort of like the, the crux of the matter. I mean, I don't doubt that farmers want to do what's right, um, but they also need to make a living. And so I don't see that our farm bill or any of the farm policies that I've looked at, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert, um, but I don't see anything that really offers incentives or helps farmers to make that transition. Can you comment on that? 
Yeah, well, first, first let me say, and I will make this quick, that the, the studies that have been done by most reputable firms in terms of the market indicate that about a, a third of the American consumers today are looking for something fundamentally different than the industrial mm-hmm. food they're in the supermarkets and restaurants, and that third is willing to pay premium prices for it. And so we have kind of a exploding movement in what I call a sustainable agriculture movement, but it's most re- reflected primarily in the early stages of the organic movement and local food and that sort of thing. So there's opportunities for farmers to make these transitions profitably today, and I spend most of my time working with farmers that are doing it mm-hmm. because there are customers out there, consumers, that are willing to pay the higher price. The, the real challenge is, is to connect the farmers that are willing to produce those products with those consumers. But that that's not the, really the question you asked. The one about policy is, and again, here's another you know, kind of uh, advantage of being old, is because I can remember, in fact, when I was in graduate school, the, the change in public policy in this country was taking place, where we moved away from supporting independent family farms as a way of providing food security to this idea that we were going to support industrial agriculture with our farm programs. And those programs were very effective. They focused on this idea that we'll, we'll, we'll subsidize things and we'll support things that specialize, standardize, allow farmers to consolidate into larger and larger farming operations. And mm-hmm. so all of the farm programs, virtually every major farm program, there's a few small programs in, in sustainable agriculture and organic farming and local foods and things, but virtually every major farm program since the 1970s when Earl Butts came in and Richard Nixon was president, as one way or another has subsidized this industrialization of agriculture. So the first thing to do to create opportunities for the alternatives is to quit subsidizing industrial agriculture. I've suggested that we ought to start by phasing out or basically doing away with any program that's associated with a specific commodity because Uh all of those one way or another allow you to specialize in producing one particular commodity rather than having diversified farming operation, which puts diversified farming in a competitive disadvantage. Right. So I would do away with those programs, and I would go over and start subsidizing farmers rather than production, subsidizing people, and and put rather than having individual crop insurance that we have today, and there is a program started out, it would be a whole farm insurance and then right. the more diversified your farm is, the less risk there is, so the lower that risk premium would be on which you had to pay for it to, you know, kind of put a floor under your income. Mm-hmm. So this would give farmers then a floor to make the make the transition to the more diversified systems that we're talking about bringing in. Right. And then, you know, we talked about regulations, or you mentioned in the introduction to your show. Uh, agriculture is probably the least regulated right. industry out here today. And if we really put regulations on industrial agriculture the way we regulate every other industry, like on the CAFOs or factory farms, if, mm-hmm. if we really force them to, to treat their, their raw sewage, their raw manure, in, in any way comparable to how we force municipalities to treat you know, the raw sewage that they have before they can do anything else with it, it would remove practically all of the advantage of industrial livestock production yes. just by forcing them to do what everybody else has to do when you have biological, potentially toxic, uh, harmful biological waste. So there's a, a range of things, but I think the important thing is is that we created this industrial agriculture with agricultural uh, policies, with farm policies, mm-hmm. and we allowed it to evolve 
by by failing to enforce the antitrust laws that were already on the books that would have prevented the concentration in the in the agricultural industries in food processing, distribution, retailing, the whole thing. So so we've either created or allowed this whole system to evolve out of the regulatory process. And if we change what we want and what we demand as a people from from farm policies, from food policies, it'll go a long ways toward making this transition possible and even profitable for the people that really want to produce food, good food for real people. Right, right. You know, I, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, though, about um, how, you know, a good 30 percent of the American people are now willing to pay higher prices for better quality food or food that reflects the actual cost of farming. In other words, food that isn't subsidized by various insurances or subsidies in the farm bill. Um, and that would uh, those those subsidies don't apply to diversified farming. They apply to commodity farming. So but the thing that bugs me and something that I've really noticed in the in the seven plus years that I've been hosting this show is that we're essentially talking about, uh, you know, and the evolution of two separate systems that are growing in this country. And that's that to me is very concerning. So as you pointed out, there is a, a large population that is willing to pay more, but there's an even larger population that can barely afford what we have now. And we have historically cheap food prices um, for many things. And so I, I wondered how you would address um, sort of... Uh, you know, dialing that back. I mean, yes, I heard what you said about about uh, changing food policy, or rather farm policy. But but in the short term, like, how do we keep that that sort of widening chasm from getting any wider? Right. Well, I I think there's several ways of uh, of doing that, and I think the 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 thing that I began to focus on more recently is this whole issue of hunger, of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you mentioned with when you were introduction to the show about sustainability, however you define it. But I think there's a growing consensus among those of it that really take it seriously that uh, sustainable agriculture is about meeting the needs of all in the present right. without diminishing opportunities for those of the future. And I think the sustainable agriculture movement that I've spent the last 25, 30 years in, we need to take seriously this challenge of making sure that good food, good, safe, wholesome, nutritious food is accessible and affordable to everyone. And I think that requires that we realize that markets are never going to feed the hungry. Markets are going to uh, produce food products or agriculture products or whoever can pay the highest price, and most people are hungry because they're they're poor or don't have the money to pay for good food. And then in the process then of trying to make ends meet, then they end up buying the cheapest food in the market, which mm-hmm. is making them sick. We've got an epidemic of obesity and heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, a whole range of things that are associated with this industrial food system and the so-called modern American diet. So we need to take those things seriously. And what I've what I've suggested, well, let, let me see, on the, on the two sides, to, to make the system more efficient for everyone, those that can afford it, I think we need to think seriously about just totally bypassing the existing supermarket mass distribution, mass retailing kind of system today. Whoa, radical. More, more and more retailing is going directly to the customer. Um, recently, back, back in the spring, um, it was on the news that Amazon.com stock value, total stock value, uh, rose above that of Walmart. Now, Walmart's still a bigger retailer by far than Amazon is, but that tells you where the investors are looking to the future. So I think we need to look at, you know, radically changing that so we find more efficient means 
of connecting people that can't afford to pay the higher price with people that the farmers that can produce that. And I think the way we address both of those problems, which I've suggested, my thinking is always evolving. You know, I'm old and retired. I can sit around and think about these things. So, so I've suggested the way we deal with both of those is kind of, kind of a community-based food system. I propose the idea of a, of a community food utility. Yes, I know. Um, you are such a radical. I, I was amazed when I read that. A community food utility. What a great idea. You know, you're sounding more and more like a commie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, people accuse me of that, but then I'll I remind them, you know, that democracy is about the common good, and yeah. we accept uh, food, we accept utilities. Most of us get our electricity and water and sewer services all served by by local utilities or by right. uh, public utilities that are that are set aside, basically monopolies that are created by government to serve the common good. And typically, people think of Utilities is what you have when you have a natural monopoly. You can't afford to run electric wires, three or four electric wires to every house so they can choose and things like that, Mm -hmm. natural monopoly. But really, utilities are there for a market failure. And I argue that the failure of the markets to address the issue of hunger, the failure of markets to provide food security, is one of the most important market failures that we have to address. So I think right. a community food utility would be totally consistent with the idea of using a public utility uh, to address a market failure. And I would make sure within this utility, then, its responsibility would make, be to make sure that everyone had enough good food to support active, healthy lifestyles, which is the definition of food security. And it could be coordinated with the current uh, food stamp programs or SNAP programs uh, uh, and coordinated with uh, various charities. They may be become all the same or they may just work in coordination. But that food utility then would also focus on getting food that was truly nutritious, that was produced on healthy soils, that was produced in a sustainable way by local farmers in the community, in the area. So it would connect local farmers with the people in the community that needed the food most, but at the same time it would give the local farmers then this foundation of the utility, which is separated from the pressure of the market, that could pay the farmers the full cost of production plus a reasonable return. And then that would give local farmers kind of an economic, solid economic foundation that they could then go beyond to produce food for people that can afford to pay the price as well as those that can't afford to pay it. Uh-huh. But I think the idea is to, is to develop that within local communities where people, you know, have a sense of connectedness and caring for each other so that you don't have people just ripping off the system and, and cheating and all of that sort of thing. If you tried to do this on a national level, I think you'd run into all the problems that we run into with our other federal, you know, food assistance programs. Uh, so we need to do it at the community level, connecting local farmers who are committed and would have to commit themselves to producing good, wholesome, nutritious food in a sustainable way and making sure that food gets to the people within the community that really needs it. Yeah, but John, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's a great idea, and I, I don't mean to dispute you in any way about it, but um, from a practical point of view, if you're a farmer in, um, I don't know, South Dakota or Illinois or something like that. I mean, you're you're going to be growing grain. You're not going to be growing oranges. You're going to be growing hogs. You're not going to be growing, I don't know, tomatoes or something like that. Like so, you know what I mean. So how do you make that? I mean, that's the prop to me. That's the problem with 
focusing on the local issue or the locality right. of your farm. You know, like there's seasonality, there's stuff that doesn't grow all year round. You know, like I mean, even animals have uh, have cycles. So how do you yeah, address and, that? Uh, and the, 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 that local utility would kind of serve like the like the electric grid or something. So whatever you can produce locally would go into that system. And what you can't then. You would connect with growers in other areas that are producing food, that agree to produce food by the same standards that you're producing it within that community. In other words, you have a personal connection between uh, the food system in Chicago, let's say, and grain growers in, in North Dakota. And, mm-hmm. and they have the same values and they have personal connections. Well, you can't grow the, the grain in Chicago, so you bring it in from North Dakota, but it's still tied together by the personal connection and the local commitment to making sure the food that comes in the community for those people meets the standards of those people. There's Globally, there's a whole uh, international movement called the food sovereignty movement, which is totally consistent with what I'm talking about mm-hmm. here. This has started among the indigenous people that are fighting the industrial agriculture system. They saw the failure of the Green Revolution. You know, after early success, right. most of that on the big farms went into export markets to richer countries. And so food sovereignty starts with the basic idea, which I think is critically important, that says that that, that food is a basic human right, uh, right, that everyone has a right to enough wholesome food to support active, healthy lifestyles. And the food sovereignty movement says that everyone has a right to food that they consider to be appropriate for their diets, you know, the customs produced in ways that are consistent sustainability in the particular places where they are. And so it's this kind of personal connection to the place and the personal connection to each other that kind of ensures the integrity of that production process under the food sovereignty movement. And so you could have people that are practicing food sovereignty out in the Great Plains somewhere who share the same value. Uh, with people that are that that are per, trying to get local food or provide food security in the city of New York, it's mm-hmm. it's people having this sense of personal connectedness and the shared sort of ethical values about how you treat each other and how you treat the land and what your responsibilities are for the future and these things. So you're connecting people with with shared values, but kind of like a, a a local public utility, you know, if they can get the supply locally, but they serve to bring in from other places, you know, they could bring food sure. in from other places, just like they bring electric power in from other places or they get gas from other places or whatever. But the local utility takes on the responsibility of saying whatever we bring in here is going to be of a quality that meets the standards of our particular community. Well, that brings up that I, I have two questions to respond to that with. Um, and um, believe me when I say I'm totally on your side, but um, first of all, we have a country where a significant number of people identify with an immoral, unethical corporate thug like Donald Trump. So where the hell are we going to find enough people in this country to even consider the idea of uh, being fair-minded or uh, looking out for each other or having a personal connection? That's question number one. And my second question is, is that we have... Uh, an agribusiness that is so expert at deploying lobbyists and at advancing their own agenda at the expense of the rest of the population as well as the environment that 
you know, breaking down that structure just to start with, um, and given the apathy of the population, just in the United States, I don't think that this same attitude exists actually elsewhere uh, to the same degree that it does here. But how how do you address that sort of dual problem of, of corruption at the highest level, coupled right. with an apathetic population that would rather eat Doritos than Brussels sprouts? You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I have a kind of a. It's a matter of. It's a matter of belief. It's not a matter of fact, you know. And I think yeah. the issues that we're talking about here really come out of different belief systems, different beliefs about how we think the world works and where we fit within it. But with respect to the, the individual, I still believe that people are basically good, and I think what motivates most people is what they really think is good, or at least uh, what they think is good that they can do anything about. And I think we've got a lot of people out here that just simply don't think they can do anything about something, and so they're just willing to do almost anything. But what I try to do to, to get people to think about these things, I, I, I like to get people to stop and think. In fact, yeah. I've advocated a national stop and think day. All day <laughs> when we do nothing, stop and think about what we're doing that doesn't make any sense. God bless you, sir. So, <laughs> so, That's fantastic. But if we stop, if we stop and think, then we'll we realize that we are material individuals. That economic well-being, you know, the things that we're pursuing are important to life. We need food, clothing, shelter, the things that money can buy, even recreation, entertainment, things of that nature. But if we stop and think, then we'll realize that we're also moral, also social beings. That that we need relationships with other people for reasons that have nothing to do with what we're going to get back in return. You know, as I like to put it in short language need to care and be cared for, to love and be loved, because that's what makes our life worth living. That's what yes. we're created as social beings. And so it's not just about this material self-interest. And we're also moral and ethical beings. We need a sense of purpose and meaning about what we're doing. We need to know that what we're doing somehow makes a difference that's positive. I think what we've lost the most among the people that you described that, you know, they seem to have no moral understanding is they've lost kind of a sense of purpose. They think nothing I do makes any difference. What, what, you know, how, what difference does it make what I do? It's not going to change anything. And then you get mm. to competing with other people. Other people are taken away from and you forget about the social thing. So I think get people to stop and think about that. And if that's what makes your life good individually, then that's what makes good communities and good families and good societies is this whole thing of being economics is important, but social relationships, a lot of people refer to as communist, socialist, whatever it is, it's democratic. That's what our democratic government is about. It's about those social relationships. Yeah. And then this sense of purpose and meaning. And I think if you can get people to believing in that way, the way we change, you talked about the, uh, the lobbyists and all of this, and we talked about reforming the Department of Agriculture or changing farm policy. Basically, what we have to have is a consumer taxpayer revolt in order to change the food system. Okay. All right. Now I we're think, down to brass tacks, sir. <laughs> Revolution. Yeah, I, 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 think if, I think if people really understood what their tax dollars are going through through the yeah. Department of Agriculture in terms of subsidizing industrial agriculture that's doing all of the things that they do not want done mm. to themselves with respect to health, to the land, to the rural communities, to urban communities, they would close it down in a minute. Uh, so we, people were simply informed and then had the values or had the feeling that, in fact, they could do something to change. I think they would, I think they would change it. And 
you know, the, the lobbyists are powerful. The economic and political power is all against everything I've talked about changing. Unfortunately, but, but yes. But the power they have, the, the only power that's greater than that power is the power of the people. And, and the power of the people, we have the ability to even go so far as change our constitution if necessary to get corporations out of politics and to yeah. get the lobbyists out of Washington, whatever. It's, it's a matter of the people regaining some sense of, of what life is about. Why are we here? You know, we're here for, I would argue, for some good purpose or it doesn't make any sense to continue living. So if we're here for some good purpose, let's get together and do those things together that we can't do individually. And that means get control of our government again, you know, yeah. move society in the direction that we want it to move. Absolutely. I'm practically in tears here, I swear to God. You are just a breath of fresh air, Professor Emeritus John Eichard. Now we have to come to the point where we have to end the program. But before we do that, you get to shamelessly promote your books and your blog. And I urge you to do that right now. Tell people how they can learn more about your ideas and more and subscribe to your newsletter or your blog, which is fantastic. I love it. Okay, it's just johneicher.com. Go to J-O-H-N-I-K-E-R-D.com. And I've got a blog post there. I've got a links to all my books there. And the books that you talked about, Sustainable Capitalism, A Return to Common Sense, is kind of the subtitle of that. And uh-huh. what I'm saying in there is if capitalism is going to be sustainable, then we have to constrain it again by the social and ethical values. Those have to take priority over the economic values. And that's the only way we can sustain capitalism. The essentials of economic sustainability, just the core principles of what we have to do if we're going to have an economy that lasts. You know, all economic value comes from nature by way of society. If we destroy the productivity of nature and society, you can't sustain the economy. And then for the agricultural folks, their small farms or real farms, which I'm make the argument, you know, that those are the only real farms left. These corporate farms aren't real farms. Right. Prices and opportunities, sustainability in American agriculture. I talk about what's wrong with agriculture and what I see as the solutions to it. With the people that I spend most of my time working with, the people that are creating this new kind of agriculture and this new food system for the future. And that's what keeps me going, yeah. being out here among people that are really doing something positive, that are making the changes. And the most important thing is, is none of us individually can change the world, but we can change our little piece of the world. And that's the way the world changes. If we can figure out what our purpose is individually, and if we can go by day by day doing what we know in our hearts is right for us to do, then we will have made the greatest contribution that we can make. And that's basically my message. And Revolution of the Middle is basically bringing the country together around those shared core values that we, that we all share and believe in rather than continuing to be divided uh, by the things that we can be manipulated into making government ineffective and destroying our ability to work together for the common good. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has exceeded my expectations by a factor of about 10. Um, And I can understand why you are such a guru to so many people in the progressive food movement. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. And you can understand why most people don't listen to what I have to say. (laughs) Well, if I have anything to say about it, they'll be listening a whole lot more. So thank you so much for being on the show today. You You betcha. And thank you to my sponsor, New York State Grown and Certified. Um, Check them out and um, thanks everybody for listening. This is a, this was really just a most wonderful and special program. I just loved it. So um, we'll see you next week with the wonderful Anna LaPay. Uh, she'll be talking more about um, agricultural reform and good food systems. Um, so be sure to tune in for that episode. And thanks again for listening. See you next week.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What is